As a church, we've recently embarked on a journey through the book of Luke, and Luke begins his book by declaring that his purpose for writing is so that his readers might have certainty about the things they have been taught, and in particular, certainty about the person of Jesus Christ. And those words of Luke right there at the beginning of his book have become very precious to me. Because when I began seriously exploring the claims of Jesus at age 19, I had no interest in mere theories. I had no interest in hedging my bets and just calling it faith. I wanted to know. I wanted to have certainty about the things I was being taught. Was Jesus the Son of God or not? That is not a trivial question. I knew then, and I know even more so right now, that the answer to that question affects absolutely everything about how I live and what I do and who I do it for. If Jesus is the Son of God, then I must dedicate my life to his teachings. But if he's not, then I am daily blaspheming God and bringing it down damnable condemnation upon myself. If Jesus is the Son of God, I must tell others about the incredible things that Jesus has said and done. But if he's not, I need to warn those same people about those same teachings, regardless of how wise they may sound to me. If Jesus is the Son of God then I must believe that his death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago was a perfect sacrifice in God's sight and that all of my sin and all of my rebellion is completely forgiven and I am now perfectly righteous before God and fully secure in his limitless love. But if Jesus is not the Son of God, then I must believe that the full weight of my sin and my, that my, my just condemnation for that sin remains on my shoulders. And when I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will have no advocate and my soul will be eternally lost. So, is Jesus the Son of God or not? Whether you already have certainty this morning that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, or whether you have heard that claim and are wondering if there is any merit to it whatsoever, our text this morning is going to plainly address that question. Let's read Luke 3, just two verses to start, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, let's say that Dan Miller 
one of our elders here at Grace Fellowship Church stood up and declared that he was the long-lost son of Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon and the richest man in the world. We'd surely say, now wait a minute. We've seen Dan's parents here at Grace Fellowship. They've come on many occasions. Uh, but, I mean, I, I guess Dan Miller and Jeff Bezos do have a similar male pattern baldness thing going on. And, and I've heard Dan call Rosie Alexa by accident once or twice. But really? We'd surely not believe that claim, right? But next week, when Dan is up here preaching, if Jeff Bezos walks into this church, and when Dan is done, Jeff stands up and declares, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Well, that would sure silence the skeptics, wouldn't it? And I'd probably ask Dan to pay off the church's mortgage. (laughs) But do you see, friends, that something even more amazing than that took place right here in this text? A voice from heaven speaks. You, Jesus, are my beloved son. There is no questioning this. Only one voice ever comes from heaven. Only one voice has that kind of authority. This was not John's voice. This was not Jesus's voice. This was the voice of God himself. And he declared that Jesus is my beloved son. So our question this morning is, is Jesus the son of God or not? According to this account, the answer is an unmistakable Yes. Nevertheless, Luke, being the wise physician that he is, will verify his prognosis from a number of angles. And so the next section of his text is going to prove that same claim, but in an altogether different way, through a genealogy. Now, bear with me, because I know that genealogies don't exactly read like Tom Clancy novels. But we must remember that genealogies are as important to the original audience of Luke's letter as, say, your bank account number, or the deed to your house, or a list of all your internet passwords would be to you. That is, that genealogy means absolutely everything about their identity. Perhaps the closest thing that I could uh, give you a, a real-time kind of example of what this might look like, uh, a contemporary context, is let's say that your parent or your child were in a car accident, and they were rushed in an ambulance to the ER, and then you get a call about that. You would immediately drop everything you're doing, right? And you would rush to the hospital, but imagine that when you tried to enter, they said, oh, no, 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 you are not getting in this building, you're not getting in that room unless you can prove that this is your parent or this is your child. How valuable would that proof of your identity be to you? What we're about to read is as important to an Israelite as that. So here we go. 
I'm going to read a bunch of names. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, There'll be grace. The son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of El Madam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Ma- uh, Mat- Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Now, at first, we might simply look at the first word of this section, that is, Jesus, and then the last few words of this section, the Son of God, and say, Jesus is the Son of God. Got it. Tom, next point, please. But I want to back up and explain a few things that we might otherwise take for granted. So let me ask a question. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Luke is repeatedly using that term. I am repeatedly using that term. But what does it mean? If we're not careful, we might wrongly interpret Son of God to simply mean divine. And so we'd replace the phrase, Jesus is the Son of God, with Jesus is divine. And that's not incorrect. Theologically, Christians believe that. With overwhelming biblical support, I might add, Jesus is divine. But Luke means a whole lot more than that here, and the original audience would have understood a whole lot more than that here. So let me take a stab at explaining this in the hopes that we will see even a little more through Luke's eyes. Biblically, the term Son of God signifies that this person is intimately part of God's 
family and thereby authorized to reign as God's king forever. I'm going to say that again. Biblically, the term son of God signifies that this person is intimately part of God's family and thereby authorized to reign as God's king forever. Now, if you were here last week, you'd recall Peter pointing out that all of mankind is part of the serpent's family, which is opposed to God and his family. However, by God's grace, we can change families. We can be adopted into God's family and call God our father. But remarkably, Jesus never needed to change families. He was, from before creation, intimately part of God's family and thereby authorized to reign as God's king forever. That is what son of God means here. We've already seen this term defined, actually, earlier in Luke. Back in the first chapter of Luke, here is what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, Jesus' mother, about Jesus. This is Luke 1, 32 and 33. Gabriel says, He will be great, and we called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So there it is, right there. Do you see how rich the term Son of God, or Son of the Most High, right here, is? It's a very rich term. Okay, so all, with all that being said, with that in our minds, when in this section of text, Luke traces Jesus' lineage back, he traces it to David, God's king, and to Jacob, because remember, Gabriel said that Jesus would reign over the house of Jacob, and to Abraham, that's the father of the Jewish nation, and to Adam, the father of all mankind, and then to God, the father of all. So Luke is proving in so many ways here that Jesus is the son of God with all its depths and layers of meaning. Now, if you recall from last week, if you were here back in verse 15 of chapter 3, we learn that the people were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. And John answered by saying, No, but he's coming, and he's going to be so much greater than me. And now, right here, Luke is saying, Here he is! God himself declared it, and his lineage proves it, and he is everything the Old Testament said he would be. So, our question this morning has been, is Jesus the Son of God or not? According to this account, the answer is an unmistakable yes. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he will reign as God's King forever. So, we have seen now that God declares it, and that Jesus' lineage proves it. But a final question for us might be, did Jesus know it? 
The answer to that question comes in our final section of text. We're going to pick up in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is a truly remarkable text. And I could easily spend entire sermons considering this single account. There's just so much here worth unpacking. But, for better or for worse, I don't have that much time this morning. So, we're only going to spend a few minutes considering it. So, before I do that, I, I feel like it's really important here to recognize that our responsibility as readers of Holy Scripture, is to always ask ourselves, what did the author, in this case, what did Luke, want us to see? What did he intend for us to understand? See, human communication at its very core is designed to have a primary point, followed by secondary points, followed by tertiary points, and so on. So, for example, this verbal sermon that you are hearing right now has what I hope is a clear primary point. It's in every point on your outline. It's the title of the sermon. And I've said it a whole bunch of times and I will continue to do so. Jesus is the son of God. Now, I've also made many other secondary and tertiary points in this sermon. And those points are not unimportant. However, if, let's say this afternoon, you are chatting with a neighbor. And that neighbor asks you, hey, I I wonder, what, what did you hear about in the sermon at church today? And if you say, Dan Miller is bald, you have missed my primary point. So even though there are a great number of exciting things here happening in this short section of Luke, let's be careful to keep Luke's main point as our main point. Now, when you're looking for a main point, a great thing to look for is what is repeated. 
So what do we see here in this text? First, the devil tempts Jesus. Second, Jesus responds to the temptation with scripture. And that happens three times. That's repeated. Now, if we're not careful, and you've maybe heard this before, we might assume that Luke wants us to see this and say, aha, anytime I am tempted by the devil, I should respond with scripture. And in truth, that's not a bad principle. But it's also not really what Luke is going for here. And that's because it's highly unlikely that any of us are going to hear the devil say to you, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Honestly, I just don't think any of us are going to be tempted by that. I've never been walking along a rocky path, let's say hiking up Mount Nittany, and thought to myself, man, if I thought I could get away with it, like if I thought no one would find out, I'd make all these rocks into some sweet Panera. That's not a temptation, right? So what's going on here? What is Luke trying to get us to see? Well, let's, let's more carefully consider the context. Earlier in chapter 3, we saw that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by God himself, right? Then we saw that Jesus was proven to be the Son of God by examining his genealogy. Here, we see that Jesus is being tested as the Son of God by being tempted by the enemy of God. The Son of God is being tempted by the enemy of God. That certainly seems to fit our context and Luke's flow of thought. It is therefore reasonable to assume that this is Luke's primary point. Thus, this section is not primarily about us and how we might use scripture to ward off the devil, but rather about Jesus and the marvelous truth that he is truly the son of God. That's what Luke is trying to get us to see. Now, let's dive a little more deeply into that idea here. For example, have you ever before read this account, or perhaps heard it for the first time today, and you're thinking to yourself, this is great and all, but, I mean, really, were these things really temptations for Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. Got it. But that means he's like, he knows the truth. In fact, he is the truth. Surely these temptations were more a formality, right? Like, he couldn't have actually, or at least wouldn't have actually given in and sinned, would he? I think the answer is that these absolutely were real, genuine temptations for Jesus. And therefore, thereby, or therefore, by overcoming these temptations, he is, again, proving himself to be the Son of God. I think that's what Luke is trying to say here. Now, why do I think that? Is that just Tom's theory? Or do I have a, a basis for that theory? Well, let me make three observations from this text to tell you why I think that is. The first is that Jesus is tempted regarding whether he's the Son of God. The first question in verse 3 that, that the devil asks is, 
If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Then his third question in verse 9, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, that middle question in verses 6 and 7, it's not as straightforward. He doesn't frame it in quite the same way, but it could be slightly rephrased. And if we get the meaning behind it, I think we could just simply say, if you are the son of God, all the kingdoms of this world will be yours. Everybody knows that. Gabriel said so. But they're actually mine right now. And in order to get them, you only need to worship me. So the core temptation as to whether Jesus, I'm sorry, is as to whether Jesus is the son of God. Now, that's probably not a surprise, given what we've been talking about, but that is the first really important observation from this section. Two more observations. Here's the second one. Jesus is tempted in every way over 40 days. Verse 13 suggests that we are seeing only three of the temptations that the devil made, but that he offered every temptation. And earlier we read that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted. Not 40 days and then was tempted. 40 days being tempted by the devil. He was tempted during all of those 40 days. We just see uh, three of them right here. Okay, that's our second observation. And these are important. You'll find out why in a moment. Third observation from this section is that Jesus is tempted in the midst of great hunger and weakness. Jesus here is literally starving. A lot of times, at least in my household, I will hear little voices saying, I'm starving, which means they haven't had a snack in like two hours. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. I don't know how often or for how long any of you have fasted, but it is, it is something I learned about very early after becoming a Christian. And though I've never fasted anywhere close to 40 days, I've nevertheless seen again and again how remarkably God uses times of deprivation from food to bring to life statements like, man does not live on bread alone. And if you're not familiar, in the Old Testament, that phrase that Jesus is quoting there, it, the rest of it is this, that, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But as great as fasting is for drawing you closer to God, it's hard. It's really hard. It's, you feel really hungry as the days go by, and you feel weaker and weaker and weaker. And you have to stand up slower. And eventually, if you fast for very long periods of time, you can't even get out of bed. Like, you cannot stand up. You feel tired often, and you have trouble thinking, at least for a good portion of that time. Thus, what you truly believe comes pouring out everywhere the good, the bad, and the ugly. Your filters are down, and who you are comes through very plainly, for better or for worse. That's our third observation. So let me recap our three observations from this text. First, Jesus is tempted in every way regarding whether he's the Son of God. Second, 
Jesus is tempted in every way over 40 days. And third, Jesus is tempted in the midst of great hunger and weakness, and what he truly believes is made plain. Now let's return, with all that in our minds, let's return to our question from earlier. Were these real temptations? Could Jesus, I'm sorry, could the one being tempted have really given in? And the answer to that question can be found, and I think Luke intends for us to find, just five words back into chapter 3. These are the five words. Adam, the son of God. These are the last words that Luke leaves echoing in our minds just before this account of Jesus' temptation. Adam, the son of God. Do you see it? Do you see? Luke's main point here is to prove that Jesus is the son of God. And here is Adam, the son of God. That's on purpose. That's absolutely on purpose because Luke wants us to compare these two men and then to, uh, uh, or to compare them as we read this account of Jesus' temptation. Let me explain. Look at this. Adam was physically the very first son of God. Jesus is spiritually the very first son of God. And if you recall from Genesis, which I'm not going to go into right now, but look it up if you're not familiar with this, upon putting breath into Adam, God declared, it is very good. Upon putting his spirit, which by the way is the same word for breath, onto Jesus, God declared, with you I am well pleased. It is very good. But these two men, uh, these two men are purposely paralleled by God and thus by Luke. But now let's look at the contrasts. Adam lived in paradise, having no lack of any kind. His body was perfectly made and operated perfectly at full strength always. Jesus was in the wilderness and lacked food for 40 days. His body was starved. He was exhausted and he was operating just above the point of death. Then the devil arrives on the scene in both accounts. Okay? And he tempts Adam one time on one day by asking, did God really say that you shouldn't eat? And... You can be like God if you just listen to me. Here, in today's text, the devil tempts Jesus, not just once, but in every way. And not just on one day, but for 40 days. By asking, did God really say that you shouldn't eat? And you can be like God and have all his stuff. If you just listen to me, if you are God's son, prove it, eat, jump, reign over all God's kingdoms. My friends, were these real temptations for Jesus? The answer for both of these men must be an unmistakable. Yes, absolutely. Adam, the perfect son of God, utterly failed in the face of just one temptation. 
Jesus, though tempted in far more ways over many days in a far, far weaker state, overcame every temptation. How much more does this prove that he is the perfect son of God? Our question this morning has been, is Jesus the son of God? And according to this account, the answer is an unmistakable yes. God declared it, his genealogy verified it, and Jesus himself knew it to his very core, overcoming every temptation to believe the contrary. Luke's account here proves three times over, and in many levels, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Luke began his book by declaring that his purpose in writing is so that his audience may have certainty about the things they have been taught, and specifically, certainty about the person of Jesus. You and I may now have that certainty that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is qualified to reign as God's king forever. So, what are the implications of this? In one sense, they are endless. I think one of the greatest joys of Christianity is in exploring the infinite space of implications from God's word. However, let's specifically consider two sets of implications. One for the original audience and one for us today. So if you've been with us for the past weeks in Luke, you'll know that we have been considering the theory that Luke wrote this book and his follow-up book, the book of Acts, as a defense for the apostle Paul, who was on trial in Rome. Now, we don't know that for sure. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical as to whether that could possibly be true. But I've slowly been coming along and seeing how it actually makes a lot of sense. And today's text is an example of that. Permit me to explain. Now, to review, that theory states that there are three accusations made against Paul, which we see in Acts 24. And I'll hear the three charges. Number one, Paul, and therefore Christianity, is a threat to Roman peace. Charge number two is that Christianity is a non-Jewish religion, and Paul is leading it, which means that Christianity should not be allowed the same freedoms that the Jewish people have in Rome at that time. And charge number three is that Paul and Christianity is a threat to Judaism. Now, if Luke is indeed writing his accounts to serve as a defense of Paul, we would expect to see him addressing those particular concerns in this text, right? So what do we see? Charge number one is that Paul and Christianity itself is a threat to Roman peace. In this account, the devil offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world, including mighty Rome. But Jesus refuses and says, instead, he will worship God. That doesn't sound like Christianity is a threat of any kind, does it? Charge number two is that Christianity is a non-Jewish religion. But in this account, Jesus repeatedly references Old Testament scripture, that's a Jewish scripture, and he clearly has a Jewish heritage. Sure sounds like the central person of Christianity is Jewish, doesn't it? 
And charge number three is that Paul and Christianity itself is a threat to Judaism. In this account, Jesus is clearly declared to be God's well-pleasing son. Thus, the very essence of what makes Judaism Judaism, that is, God himself, is in favor of Jesus, and therefore in favor of Christianity. That doesn't sound like Christianity is a threat to Judaism, does it? So again, if Luke was indeed written in part to serve as a defense for Paul, today's text would be exceptionally helpful in making that case. Now regardless, as we've already seen, what is very clear is that Luke begins his book by declaring that his purpose in writing is so that his audience may have certainty about the things they have been taught, and specifically certainty about the person of Jesus, right? So, grace Fellowship Church, those of you here this morning, do you have certainty? Is Jesus the Son of God or not? The answer to that question affects absolutely everything about how you live and what you do and who you do it for. So let me close with four implications for us, three of which I mentioned earlier. Here's the first one. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must dedicate our lives to his teachings. Are you doing that? Do you know what the Son of God has taught? Are you reading his teachings in the Bible in order to learn them? Are you thoughtfully considering what you're reading and how it should affect how you live? Are you living by bread alone or by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you're not doing those things, then you should ask yourself, is Jesus the Son of God or not? Implication number two. If Jesus is the Son of God then we must tell others about the incredible things that Jesus has said and done. Are you doing that? Are you inviting others to come and see? Most of you, if not all of you, are here today because someone invited you to check out Jesus. Are you offering others that same gift? If not, you should ask yourself, Is Jesus the Son of God or not? Implication number three. If Jesus is the Son of God, then we must believe it. And if we believe it, we can have certainty that his death on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago was a perfect sacrifice in God's sight and that all of our sin and all of our rebellion is paid for in full and that we are now perfectly righteous before God and fully secure in his limitless love. But if Jesus is not the son of God or if we do not believe it, then the full weight of our just condemnation still rests on our shoulders. And when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we will have no advocate and our souls will be eternally lost. Dear friends, if you came in here this morning 
not believing that Jesus is the Son of God, but by looking at what Luke shows us this morning, you have come to have certainty that Jesus is the Son of God, then please come speak with me right after this. Because, my friend, you have just become a Christian. And I would love to talk to you about that. Now, our final implication is right here in front of us. Today is a communion Sunday here at Grace Fellowship Church. Once a month, we enjoy this simple ritual of eating a little piece of bread and drinking a little cup of juice as a means of remembering what Jesus has done for us. And so uh, I'd like to invite the worship team, a.k.a. my wife, to come on up here. Now, here's the Apostle Paul's account of why we do this, why we eat this little piece of bread and drink this little cup of juice. It's not arbitrary. Paul says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We as Christians believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died and then rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And we are now eagerly, eagerly awaiting his return in which he will complete the saving work that he has already begun. Thus, this meal is a meal for Christians. And in a moment, I will ask each of you to come up and take a piece of bread and get this cup of juice, and then we'll take it together once everyone has been served. But if you're not a Christian here today, Please remain seated and instead consider the things you have heard that you have seen in Luke here today. Ask yourself, what is keeping me from believing that Jesus is the Son of God? And then please come ask me or someone sitting around you about that afterwards.